Have you ever asked this question? What am I going to wear? Maybe you asked that question this morning. Sure, most weekends you wear your cargo shorts and your gray Nanu Nanu t-shirt, but, but imagine that next weekend is your cousin's wedding. And, and your cousin is marrying the daughter of a U.S. senator. And, and there's a minister from the National Cathedral in Washington, D.C. that is going to be performing the ceremony. The invitation was super fancy. It was really nice, but it didn't say what you were supposed to wear. You're not sure. It's, it's a night wedding. You're thinking there's going to be some dignitaries there, so surely it'll be formal, you know, maybe semi-formal. You know, but, but you're thinking, man, I, I don't know because it's, it's not here. Nobody told me what I need to wear. What am I supposed to wear? Interestingly, at the bottom of the fancy invitation, it says that the reception is going to be at the stake pit. A little bit interesting, you know, big, big fancy wedding, you know, fancy invitation, you know, U.S. Senator, minister from the National Cathedral, and the stake pit. Something about that didn't go together. So now you're, you're really nervous. How do you go to a wedding that feels like it might be formal, but it's going to end up at a rib joint that has crab legs, a Saturday special? What do you wear to that? There is something that maybe you could do. Just wear your cargo shorts. Wear your Nanu Nanu t-shirt. Just throw on a sport coat. You're good. Just go and, and see what happens. But you know, there's something worse than not knowing exactly what you should wear. What's worse is when your plus one for the wedding says, I don't have anything to wear. You know? that, that's when it really gets tough. And they say that as they're opening up you know, the seventh upstairs closet that they have, you know. Second? No, no, seventh. Yeah, seventh upstairs closet. In my lifetime, I can say from personal experience that I have seen chronic cases of nothing-to-wear-itis in men and women of all ages. I've seen people frantic because they don't have anything to wear. Marilyn Komar is a fashion journalist. She notes that one of the reasons people would say they don't have anything to wear is because in that moment, they're not inspired. This is what she writes. Trust me, if you have more than 10 things hanging in your closet, you have something to wear. The issue is you're out of ideas on how to combine them in fresh and out-of-the-box ways. She goes on. Remedy that by scrolling through blogs or fashion sites and compiling the new inspiration onto a Pinterest board that you can consult every time you want to dress in a more exciting way. Her advice proves that that old adage passed down through all the centuries, if at first you don't succeed, try, try to start a Pinterest board. I mean, that's what you got to do when you don't know what to wear. But what if the issue is not whether it's supposed to be formal, semi-formal, or lobster bib? What if the issue is not even that you need to figure out what you're going to wear from the more than 10 things in your closet? What if the issue is you don't have the right clothes and you can't get the right clothes no matter what? You don't own the right clothes. You can't buy the right clothes. You can't rent the right clothes. You can't borrow the right clothes. Or maybe put another way, what do you do when you have nothing? What do you do when you can't get nothing? What do you do when your parents or your spouse or your kids or your friends or your neighbors 
or your pastor or your doctor or your lawn care man or your congressman when they can't do nothing for you? What do you do then? What do you do when you are lost? What do you do when you are helpless? What do you do when you can't find a hope in this world? Well, the Apostle Paul has an answer for all of those questions. He's been writing to his friends at Philippi, and he's, he's talking about the surpassing value of knowing Christ and gaining Christ. He, he's writing in a way, saying, man, I just want to gain more of Christ and more of Christ and more of Christ. I just, I just want to gain more. And then he says this in Philippians 3, verse 9, and may be found in him. When you have nothing and no person and no possession, and no holiday weekend can fix your world. When you have no hope and you feel helpless, the greatest and most encouraging and most comforting and most satisfying thing that can happen to you is to be found in Christ. What does that mean? What does it mean to be found in Christ? Well, I can't really explain it. <laughs> it's, it's too grand, it's too great, it's too wonderful, it's too amazing, it's, it's too far beyond comprehension. The, the one true God of the universe has made a way for you to have a personal relationship with Him. Personal. Not just a member of a church. Not just some good feelings reading a devotional book in the morning. Not just some good vibes from listening to Christian songs. But God has made a way through the birth and the life and the death, the resurrection, the ascension of Jesus for you to have a personal relationship with him. You can have a personal relationship with the one who spoke the world into existence. The Bible is spilling over with pictures of, of this relationship and, and what it means to be found in Christ. I'm just going to pick out a couple this morning. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7. In him, in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. In Christ, you can be redeemed, you can be rescued, you can be forgiven. In Christ, the debt of your sin can be canceled. You do not have to die in the penalty of your sin. You do not have to fear death because Jesus has purchased your redemption. He has purchased your salvation with his very own blood. To be found in Christ means that all day today and all day tomorrow and all day next Thursday and all day August 14th, 2029, and in the moment that you breathe your last, you can have confidence that no power of hell and no scheme of man can ever pluck you from the hand of God. That's, that's just one picture of what it means to be in Christ, what it means to be found in Christ. Here's the second picture. This is what Paul said to the folks at Rome. Romans 8, verse 38. For I'm convinced, nobody can change my mind on this, for I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. To be found in Christ means that you cannot be separated from the love of God. 
Your parents cannot promise you that. Your spouse cannot promise you that. Your kids, your grandkids, they can't promise you that. No one can promise you that kind of love. Not your boyfriend, not your girlfriend. Not your favorite sports team, not your career, not your retirement account, not a doctor, not a nurse, not a pastor, not any medicine. Nothing in this world can can make this kind of promise of love to you, this kind of care for you. To some degree, we will be separated from every single person and every single thing and every opportunity in life, but we cannot be separated from the love of God. We cannot be separated from the God who spoke the world into existence and fearfully and wonderfully made you. That's what it means to be in Christ. So you see now kind of, it's, it's kind of hard to explain, you know, because it's, it's kind of beyond our wildest imagination. And, and what makes it great is, what makes it even wilder is that to be found in Christ is kind of defined by the fact that Christ is actually found in you. C.S. Lewis has an intriguing way of saying this. Imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps you understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right and sopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew that those jobs needed doing and so you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one you thought of. Throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage, but he is building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. That's an amazing way of of looking at what it means to be found in Christ because the only way that you can truly be found in Christ is if Christ is found living in you. What we're talking about here is identity. What is your identity? Just, Just look at your life right now. What's your primary identity? Where is your primary identity? Is it in your titles? Is your primary identity in, in being a, a husband or a wife or a father or a mother or a grandfather or grandmother? Is your primary identity in being a son or a daughter or an aunt or an uncle or a, a boss or a supervisor, an employee, a pastor, a church member? Is your primary identity wrapped up in your titles? Now, all those titles are great. Whatever your titles are, they're super. Take those titles and live out those titles. Live out those titles with grace and peace and humility and sacrifice and hard work and steadfast love. Go get them. But if your primary identity is in any of those titles, then your identity is not just lacking. Your identity is lost. This is what Paul said to the folks in Colossae, Colossians 1, 27. Christ in you, the hope of glory. This is what it means to be in Christ, that the, the hope of, of glory is inside of you. Now, this kind of glory is, is not the glory that wins you a sports championship. This is not the glory that wins you a seat in government. This is not the glory that, that wins you a, a place as an Instagram star. This is not the type of glory that wins you a spot on American Idol. 
Because see, if you evaluate those things and look at them through the, the filter of eternity and the filter of the glory of God, you, you find a different kind of glory. See, that sports championship, the glory of that sports championship, it will fade and end maybe next year when another team beats you and, and they take over the crown. Or it will end when you age out and you can't play the game anymore. Or it will end, especially and particularly, when you die. The glory of that championship you won't take with you to heaven. And that seat in the Senate, it'll end. Either when you lose your re-election campaign, or when you retire from office, or the glory of that Senate seat will, will end, especially and particularly, when you die. The glory of that seat will not go with you. And the glory of, of being a, a star on Instagram, the, the glory of being an American idol, those things will end when people quit looking at your pictures. It'll end when you lose that next singing round. And it'll especially end when you die. But not so with the glory of God. See, the glory of God is not like that. The glory of God always plays. The glory of God always wins. The glory of God never loses an election. The glory of God is never replaced. The glory of God has a never-ending camera roll. The glory of God has unstoppable, uninterrupted likes. They never stop. The glory of God never loses its edge, never loses its beauty. The glory of God never fades. The glory of God never ends. The glory of God never dies. And so if you're found in Christ, that glory is yours. The, the glory and the power and the beauty of Almighty God is yours. It becomes your primary occupation. It becomes your primary preoccupation. It becomes your primary motivation, your primary jubilation, your primary anticipation, and your primary destination. It is who you are. The glory of God becomes your identity, being found in Christ and having the power and the hope of the glory of the one that spoke the world into existence. That becomes who we are. Being found in Christ is our identity. Being redeemed and rescued, forgiven, is our identity. Being loved by God which, with a love that we cannot be separated from, that, that becomes our identity. Popular journalist Malcolm Muggeridge broke it down this way. I may, I suppose, regard myself as being a relatively successful man. People occasionally stare at me in the street that is fame. I can fairly easily earn enough to qualify for admission to the highest slopes of inland revenue. That's success. Furnished with money and a little fame, even the elderly, if they care to, can partake of trendy diversions. That is pleasure. It might happen once in a while that something I said or wrote was sufficiently heated to persuade myself that it represented a serious impact on our time. That's fulfillment. But then he says this. Yet I say to you, and I beg of you to believe me, multiply these tiny triumphs by a million. Add them all together, and they are nothing, less than nothing. A positive impediment measured against one draft of that living water 
that Christ offers to the spiritually thirsty. The thirst of your soul can only be satisfied by being found in Christ. Your soul will always be thirsty until you have drunk of the living water of Jesus. Paul was confident that he was in Christ, which means that he was confident that the hope of glory was inside of him, which means that he was confident that there was coming a day when he would stand before God and he would hear the words, not guilty. Not guilty. But not just that. Paul realized that also in that moment, it it wasn't just that he was going to escape the eternal punishment of his sins. In that moment, he realized, wait a minute, I am really about to be found in Christ. I'm about to be eternally embraced by Jesus forever and ever and ever. You see, the, the joy of salvation is not just that you get out of hell. The joy of salvation is you get Jesus, that you're found in him forever and ever and ever. Christian, our personal relationship with the king in the universe has no end. That that's our identity. It's because that relationship never ends. But how is that possible? Look, you can, you can make a huge donation to, to any candidate that you want to, but it, it doesn't mean that you're going to have a personal relationship with a, a senator or a president. And you might find out that, that your dog is related to the royal dorgies, Vulcan or Candy, you know. But you know what? That ain't going to give you a personal relationship with the queen. So how is it that people like me and you can have a personal relationship with the one true everlasting king of the universe? How is that possible? Well, Paul's going to tell us. Look at verse 9. Not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law. If Paul had been born in America, then we might say that he was a good law-abiding citizen. Actually, what we might say is he was a great law-abiding citizen. He, He had this charisma, this authority, this skill, this talent. Man, he was sharp. He would be the leading candidate in, in any conservative party, and he would win again and again and again, and nobody would run against him. Paul was so amazing spiritually, so amazing religiously, he couldn't stoop to be the pope. Paul was the kind of guy that that every dad wanted to call son, that every mom wanted her daughter to marry. Paul was the kind of guy that every church would have as a leader and everybody wanted on their team. Paul's real deal. But he says that when he looked at his qualifications and his qualities and even his cool religious quirks, he said, you know what? None of that stuff will make me right with God. He discovered that, that that none of the the greatest things in his life would would make him right with God. Charles Spurgeon said this, Paul does not say not trusting it, but not even having it, not counting it, not thinking it worthwhile to put down among his possessions that which he once prized so much. It must be more glorious to be justified by God than by ourselves. And then he says this, it must be more safe to wear the righteousness of Christ than to wear our own. Paul had an amazing religious wardrobe. Amazing. But he knew, he discovered that if he was standing before a holy God, 
his spiritual clothes, his moral clothes, they were not safe. They were dangerous. He didn't own the right clothes. He couldn't buy the right clothes. He couldn't rent the right clothes. He couldn't borrow the right clothes. Paul had nothing. James, the half-brother of Jesus, wrote something really interesting in James 3, verse 9. He says, but if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. It's kind of a funny little jolt that James just throws out to the people that, that are reading his letter. He, he had to know that there were people in this group that were thinking, I'm a pretty good person, you know. I don't, I don't color outside the lines too much. I, I go to church, I give some money, I, I'm, I'm dialed in with charity. I mean, I volunteer in the community. And then, and then boom, he, he just shows up and he goes, yeah, but you know, if you show partiality to wealthy, important people, you are a low-down, dirty, rotten, sinful scoundrel. <laughs> You're disobeying the laws of King Jesus. And then he, he piles it on a little thicker. Listen to verse 10. For whoever keeps the law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. Now, now, James isn't saying here that if a Christian breaks one sin, they're going to hell. That's, that's not the context here. What James is saying is that when he kept looking at the church, there were a lot of phony Christians in the church. There were a lot of Christians who weren't really redeemed. They weren't really rescued. They were still hanging on to this one sin. This, this one sin was keeping them away. See, a bunch of them might say, hey, I'm a pretty good person. And then he says, well, you're showing favoritism. Ah, ah. Can't be that big of a deal, right? Mel Trotter started more than 60 homeless shelters across the United States, starting in, in Grand Rapids, Michigan. And this is what he once said. In the last analysis, there is always just one sin that keeps a man from getting right with God. Just one. Just one makes you a transgressor. Just one makes the reality true for every single one of us that, that we don't have the right clothes, that we do not have a righteousness of our own, that we can't make ourselves right with God. So what do we do? I mean, how can that change? How is it that we could be made right with God? Paul tells us, next part of verse 9, but that which is through faith in Christ the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. Paul had discovered, and he's telling us today, that nobody can perfectly keep the law. Nobody, ever. No one. We cannot meet the requirements of God's law. We'll never be able to do it, but Jesus did. Jesus perfectly kept God's law. His righteousness is perfect, and only his righteousness saves. So that means when we don't have a righteousness of our own, we need the righteousness of Christ if anything is ever going to be right between us and God. Being raised in a church going home is great, but it will not save you. Being baptized and, and partaking of the Lord's Supper are beautiful ordinances that Jesus commanded, but they will not save you. Doing good deeds and, and serving people and volunteering and being a great guy or a great gal, those are fantastic, but they will not save you. 
The only way a person can be right with God, the only way a person can be accepted by God is if by faith they receive the righteousness of Christ because we do not have a righteousness of our own. This is this amazing, divine, grand exchange. See, our account has this gross, wretched sin and rebellion and transgressions and trespasses. And God takes the penalty of that out of our account, and he puts it onto the account of Jesus. And then he takes the perfect righteousness of Jesus out of his account, and he puts it into our account. God makes this transition. We don't have a righteousness of our own. So it's 100% righteousness of Jesus, 0% righteousness of us. We have none. Our account gets filled with the perfection of Jesus. Our account gets filled with the righteousness of Jesus. And the righteousness of Jesus is perfect and it is final. It's final. I kind of drove away from from graduation uh, Friday night with my daughter. It was kind of funny. We were both laughing that neither one of us really cried. (laughs) You know, I'm I'm a crier. I'll cry at everything. But, you know, we didn't cry. And it was funny. We kind of laughed. I was like, I didn't cry. She was like, I didn't either. And, And, you know, I think what it is is it's just that it was this moment where we went, okay, this has been fantastic. God, thanks you. Thank you. But, hey, what's next? You know, God, what are you doing next? You know, it's it's time to take the next step. And I think we kind of both... We're feeling that moment in that second. We're, we're always going to be in the next step, no matter what we're doing. If, if you're at work and it's hard, you still got to go to the next step. If, if you're in marriage and it's hard, you still got to go to the next step. If you're in treatment and, and it's hard, you, you still got to go to the next step. We're, we're always in the next step. But here's the beauty of the righteousness of Christ. In Christ, we don't have to take a next step one day. Because in Christ, this righteousness, this perfection, it is final. We can breathe and we can be confident. I do not have to earn this next step. This next and final step, it has been purchased for me. The righteousness of Christ, it's it's final. Nobody can cancel it out. Nobody can take it from you. No matter what happens in this country, no matter what happens in the world, no matter what disease comes to your body, no matter what depression comes to your mind, no matter what discouragement comes to your heart, the perfect righteousness of Jesus cannot be taken away from you. It is perfect. It is final. It is full. It is fantastic. And that's what it's supposed to be because that's who Jesus is. And that's why Paul says, man, I want to gain more of that. I want to be found in more of that. The Cops Grocery Store sits on the corner of Plover Road and Hoover Avenue in Plover, Wisconsin. I guess I'm saying Plover, right? I hope I am. Last May, Irvin was standing outside of that Cops Grocery Store, and, and people just kept coming up talking to him. They'd see him on the other side of the parking lot, and they'd come over to talk to him, and and some people would even give him money. Was he homeless? Did he have a creative sign about his need, and and people were were going over to help him? Well, he did have a sign, and he was kind of asking for help. 
But on that day, the reason that all those people were walking all across the parking lot and everywhere else to go meet Irvin was because Irvin was standing outside in front of the cop's grocery store wearing his father's World War I uniform. His father, Philip, was a, with the Machine Gun Company, 64th Infantry, 7th Division, the American Expeditionary Force. He fought in France. And that day, Irvin had his, his dad's uniform on. Irvin's a member of American Legion Post 543 in Plover. And on that day last year, last May, he and his wife Alice were standing out in the front and they were passing out poppies and, and people were giving them money to, to donate to meet needs of veterans there in their community. After 35 years in the military, Irvin retired as a lieutenant colonel. Out of his family, there's, there's nine people who have served or are serving in, actively in, in military. His brother Ralph was killed in battle in Italy in 1944. The journalist that was covering this story about Irvin standing outside the grocery store last May said, you know what, Irvin looked so fit. <laughs> he looked so in shape. And, and wearing his father's uniform, it looked like you had just pulled him off a movie set. He, he just looked amazing. And how did Irvin engage all those people that day? As he stood outside and people came up to him, what, what was it he said to them? Well, he smiled, he greeted them, he, he stuck out his hand, and he said, hey, can I tell you about this uniform? And then he would tell a story about his dad and, and his brother, and, and he would talk about the sacrifices that so many people have made so that we might be free. You know, that's kind of what Paul's doing. Paul's writing and saying, hey, can I tell you about this uniform? It's it's made of righteousness. And I didn't earn it, and I couldn't buy it, and I couldn't borrow it. it. It was given to me. And I'm wearing it because of the sacrifice of another. And the freedom it gives me goes beyond the grave. And the hope it gives me conquers my fears. And the love it gives me satisfies my soul because this righteousness reminds me that today and tomorrow and for the rest of my life that I am found in Christ. And nothing can separate me from the love of God. Dear friend, is that your uniform? With joy and confidence, can you say today, I am found in Christ and nothing can separate me from the love of God.